Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. an all-new episode of Keep It Home Edition. I remain in my closet, and I have to tell you something. I just realized it now. Every time I get into this closet to record, In the Closet by Michael Jackson plays in my head. Every time. (laughs) (laughs) I, too. Louis, I've taken your note. I've transitioned to my closet as well because the acoustics are just better, and I can, you know, I feel isolated uh, in the way I want to be. But I'm uncomfortable, and once again, the irony is not lost on me that I am in the closet on this gay, gay podcast. No, it's like a bad short story with a bad metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is with your homes? <laughs> can, can, can you, can you like put some things in them, some things on the wall so that mm. the acoustics, I don't know, get better? Padded, padded. I like to <laughs> your, refer to it as home, a bunker. Your home shouldn't be this airy. <laughs> Mine's a hardwood floor situation. That's the yeah. issue. It's a minimalist. That's a loft. The love it or leave it are called the love it or leave it back in the closet because I guess he's recording in his closet. Well, John Lovett came out, what, oh. 10 minutes ago? So that metaphor is brand new to him. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's fair. He's <laughs> never been to a discotheque. <laughs> <laughs> he and Ronan, by the I, way. I feel like I keep hearing updates about their relationship or how their domestic situation is every second. They're like Tori and Dean all of a sudden. I can't stop hearing about them. <laughs> Howie Mandel and Terry Hatcher. (laughs) Anyway, we have a very fun show today. We will be talking to David Diggs. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Aida. Did you not say keep it a couple of weeks ago to Snowpiercer, the TV series, and look at us now, confronted (laughs) with David. Look at Lewis bringing receipts to the reunion. (laughs) Long ones. Texting Andy Cohen. This might be the theme of keep it is that Every Aida Keep It will be taken back in three or four episodes. Just keep that in the back of your mind. I did it with Dave. I'm doing it with Snowpiercer. And who knows? I might do it with today's Keep It too. Ha. You know, so she pr- it's a lie, but she promises to lie. Just know I that. Promise. So consistency is what I can promise you too. That's right. Which reminds me, Ira, I was talking about this with Aida earlier. Have we ever had a Tony winner on this show before? I don't think so. Not while I've hmm. been around, for sure. Besides me, of course. You remember my turn yeah, in the yeah, glass yeah, menagerie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've had a couple think, nominations. Think, things. Yeah, yeah through, I know, but, but it never pans uh, out for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, yes, you know what? But those are all producing nominations. <laughs> and Lewis and I only stand competitive Tony winners. That's right. Yeah. No, we have no. We actually have a couple of friends who've won producing Tony nominations. The New Oklahoma, etc. And I'm not saying they're not accomplished people. It is not the same thing. Mm-hmm. You're not in the split screen on prime time, so it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> okay, it means you ran someone their money. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> And if I had the money to cut a check, I would be producing Shrek 2 on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> Shrek the Shrexical. 
Yikes. Yikes. Wait, no, Shrek 3, Shrek Wrecked, or whatever those chipmunk movies are. (laughs) (laughs) And we will also be talking about commencement speeches, digital graduations, and offering some of our own advice to... The class of 2020 should be really helpful. You guys yeah. are gonna, you guys are gonna grow so much after this one. <laughs> you poor kids, you poor poor kids. Anyway, we'll be right back. Well, the president is ingesting hydroxychloroquine, and I'm on my second bottle of wine this morning. <laughs> You're the same. The two of you are the same. Is it working? This is stand up. At least, <laughs> at least, is the wine working for you? Yeah, you know, it's it's killing something in me. Because <laughs> I don't know if Trump can say that about the hydroxychloroquine for him. Mm. It's not killing enough of you, as far as I'm concerned, Ira. But you'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of consuming things, look at that segue. Oh my god! Oh my goodness! Edward R. Murrow in charge of the news here. Wow. <laughs> What have we all consumed this week in the culture? I did a brand new thing, which was consuming old stuff that is arguably forgotten. So that you've never done, yes, isn't that really never strange? done that new. before? So new never, for never experienced any of that before. I love giving <laughs> you this novelty. Yes, um, what year this time? We're going to start in 1983. What's happening then? Um, Thriller is out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just bringing up Michael Jackson again and again. I'm sorry. Um, but also... <laughs> the Mary Jane Girls. Oh, my... Actually, let's just do a whole episode on the Mary Jane Girls. I could <laughs> listen to them all day. I was listening to their 83 album all last week. It was my writing soundtrack. Is that all night long? Does that have that on it? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, in the wake of E.T., which came out uh, the previous year, which is you know a gigantic sci-fi movie that has small nuclear family elements in it. Mm-hmm. There's this movie called Testament starring Jane Alexander, Best Actress nominee, which is a movie about the nuclear apocalypse happening. And there are no special effects in the movie. It's just about how people in a small town deal with it in a mundane way before they are all wiped out. Mm. And I've got to tell you, it is one of the perfect quarantine movies to watch. If you've never heard of it, It is literally a woman finding out via the news that there's a nuclear apocalypse. A newscaster says this is real. And then her family members, like her kids, start getting sick. Her husband doesn't come home. She has to sort of mingle with the neighbors a little bit. It is so small. And uh, there are certain COVID parallels in that, for instance, she'll be in line at the grocery store and then... Somebody will accuse her of cutting, and then there's a hostility between everyone because they know, you know, it's such a fraught time. So there, mm-hmm. there's, that, there's that weird element. But also, her performance is so great. It's such an underrated movie, and I'm surprised it's not a classic because the best parts of it, the family discussions, remind me of my favorite parts of E.T., which are those small family moments. That feels a little Twilight Zone. Yes. A little Monsters on Maple Street. Mm -hmm. I'm irritated by how confrontational you are with the like pandemic psychology right now. How are you doing? Yeah. I'm very avoidant about that stuff. But I mean, I I guess that's like, that's a new take on it. Yeah. I couldn't watch any of that. Like people watching Contagion uh, couldn't do that. I saw the other day that Bug was available, that Tracy Lutz oh my God, yeah. um, play that was turned into a film. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that 
literally seems like my skin would start crawling itself. But I will say something interesting, Lewis. I will I will give this a look because it's, a, like you said, a whole other angle. And also, by the way, it's like 86 minutes long or something. So okay. exactly in our wheelhouse of tolerability. <laughs> Additionally. Rebecca DeMornay's in it. You didn't tell me that. <laughs> and, 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 and so is Kevin Costner in one of his first roles. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, additionally, I, for some reason, this is going to make me seem like a total poser when it comes to prestige movies, have avoided the latter two, uh, Richard Linklater before movies. These are the movies that are before Sunrise, before Sunset, and before Midnight, starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. They're essentially movies about two people, and it's, it's a romance, like, it, but it's two people having a conversation, basically in three different movies. I had underestimated the power of everybody involved in these movies. This is another quarantine essential as far as I'm concerned because it reminds you of the excitement of talking to another person, <laughs> of getting you excited to just have one-on-one interaction, yeah. you know? And I mean, like, I'm at a loss for words when talking about this. The reason I watched these, in fact, was because last week Ira brought up Collateral, mm-hmm. and that made me think about Ethan Hawke. Guys, so he was snubbed for First Reformed last year, and... It's crazy that both of these actors were not nominated for all three of these movies. Let me tell you something. It's just a conversation. It is never once contrived. There's never once a moment of dialogue that is written to indicate who the characters are. Like, oh, here's my quirky characteristic. Here's my weird side. They're just people who genuinely seem to want to connect with other people using all of their intelligence and all of their empathy. And it's a movie series that puts you in a place of calm and concentration, Mm -hmm. unlike almost anything else I've seen. And I truly recommend it for everybody. I think it's a fabulous trilogy. Maybe my favorite trilogy. You know how I feel like Ethan Hawke should have won for Boyhood 2 in 2015. I think I've made that clear as well. I love that man. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that that story is about Nebraska. It's just, I like (laughs) love him so much. So I'm with you. I'll watch it. I will give it a look. I told you that I would, and I'll report back next week with my opinions. It's also, by the way, so strange that... Patricia Arquette won for Boyhood, and Julie Delpy has not been nominated for acting once. This woman will react sometimes a dozen times to something Ethan Hawke has said within the space of 30 seconds, and it's never once put on. I never once think, oh, that was false, etc. And the camera is constantly on her, too. It's an amazing performance. Yeah, she should win awards for her bone structure alone. That woman is one of the most unique-looking women I've ever seen. Mm. Though you know I love a French actress, um, Julie Delpy. Um, j'adore, j'adore, j'adore Julie Delpy. Uh, Catherine Deneuve is shook. Uh, it's been a while but, since Catherine's um, come up. You know, Ira, I dare know. I say you're improving. Dare I say that? I really Merci. Yeah. Merci beaucoup. Uh, I, you know I love a romantic drama. Um, mm-hmm. And I agree with Lewis that as a writer, those films are beautiful to just sort of watch because they do teach you economy of dialogue, you know? I started Masterclass recently, Uh fun, like you did, and I was looking at Aaron Sorkin's one. How's that? It's fine. It's (laughs) it's fun. Uh, I'm in such a weird quarantine headspace where I feel like I need just some sort of brain refresher on writing in general because Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't want to do it. Um, unless I'm doing it for work. But, you know, just the idea of, like, writing shouldn't be about, like, showing off your tricks, you know? It should be about two characters interacting, and I think that in 
the before movies, they are just interacting with one another and they feel so human. Um, I didn't love Boyhood that much, but mm -hmm. I do love a Linklater film. I'm one of the few stands of Everybody Wants Some. I, I am too. <laughs> I honestly think that movie is excellent. It is gay porn. That also. Basically. Yeah. Um, the hottest men um, just in this movie, all in baseball uniforms, all in 80s shorts. Uh, but that's another movie, right? That just feels like his movies feel so human and lived in, which was why Where'd You Go, Bernadette was so odd. No, that's yeah. the craziest addition to his catalog. <laughs> also, uh, another weird thing about these movies is, so it's just two people talking the entire time. And of course, if you don't know the lore, they were filmed nine years apart. So one's yeah. in 1995, mm -hmm. one's in 2004. Later. Yeah. Um, Record later. <laughs> yes, precisely. <laughs> Nobody makes a single pop culture reference the entire time. And I have to tell you, that's my entire identity. Oh. <laughs> and some of the scenes are built out of the actor's improvisation that are then worked into the script. But mm -hmm. otherwise, it just seems impossible to comprehend that they could get these movies together. It really does seem crazy to me. It does seem odd to watch a movie that doesn't make pop culture references. And I sometimes do err on the side of... Should you be making like current pop culture references in writing? Because, for instance, like a 30 Rock. Right. Yeah. As much as it's so fucking funny, feels very dated now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how anyone younger could watch it and understand it. But also, Shakespeare plays are full of pop culture references, right? Mm -hmm. they, they just don't make sense to us anymore. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I think I, when it comes to pop culture references, I get tired of it as a device when they're trying to like hammer down what decade it's in. Like they're mm. trying to use it as like a time travel device. Mm -hmm. That's when I start to get irritated, when I start to notice it. And reference jokes, right? You oh know, my like God. if you're if you're just talking to someone and you're like, shut up, Eddie Haskell. <laughs> like, that, <laughs> like that's, that's, that's not that's a roast. Not a, that's not a joke. That's not a roast. <laughs> also also RIP Eddie Haskell. I know he just died. I was wondering <laughs> right. if that's why you thought of it. Yeah. Yeah, it is why I thought of it. I it's so weird me thinking of me like this black kid in the Midwest watching Leave It to Beaver. <laughs> right. Um, but I was obsessed with Nick at Night TV Land, so I watched Leave It to Beaver every night it was on. Oh, sure. Also, Eddie Haskell, if people don't know, so that's a character in Leave It to Beaver, and he is this unctuous per, uh, neighbor who like is always in Beaver's mom's good graces, but he's you know a little shit. We don't have another name for that. It's like yeah. when um, the term douchebag hit popular culture. We don't have a synonym for that, so I have to keep mm -hmm. saying that horrible word. <laughs> yeah, but Eddie Haskell is weirdly such an enduring piece of pop culture. Like, you can have references to Eddie Haskell going into movies now, you know? And right. I think mm -hmm. that people would understand what you mean, even if they've never seen Leave it to Beaver. Meanwhile, Barbara Billingsley, the mom on that show, her only other... Lasting pop culture legacy is that she speaks jive in airplane, which should last us a long time. <laughs> <laughs> a very funny scene. Great however. scene. Great scene. Aida, what have you watched? Well, I feel like I can't not mention the Nelly versus Ludacris versus. I don't know mm. if you guys watched it. I had my FUBU on. You saw my FUBU jersey. Slick down. Yes, I got some vintage FUBU. Yeah. Finally, I've wanted to get vintage FUBU since Solange dropped the song FUBU on a seat at the table, and I finally got some um, this week off Poshmark. How was it? Look, I have like an old yellow like windbreaker that I like to wear. My FUBU just makes, and a tall tee. Just, I just like to be yeah. ignorant in my FUBU. <laughs> it's great, and I remembered, thankfully, sizing 
from <laughs> the mid to early 2000s in that the sizes were much bigger than they are now. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I went a size down from what I normally have, and it fit me perfectly. Yes. Because, like, wearing just, like, an XL in, like, 2002 was, like, a double, triple XL. Yeah, Ira, do you not want the hem <laughs> of your shirt to touch your ankles? Like, what's wrong with you? So if you wore baggy fubu gear would you still be wearing boot cut jeans with that or no i think that you would and then like some like really disgusting buffalino shoes like thick shoes that have nothing to do with the outfit that you're wearing okay but also part of it is a lot of fubu gear can go with tims Mm -hmm. and the ankles of your pants um are just sort of tucked into your boots at that point oh i see it's irrelevant then yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but yeah, so the Nelly versus Ludacris was very entertaining when Nelly could get his Wi-Fi to work. Ira, you were live tweeting it, and it was very, very fun. A lot of people were live tweeting it, and it was just giving me that communal feeling again that we get during like award shows and live TV commentating. Like, I think Versus is the only pandemic programming that like all of us have gotten behind, at least barely, mm-hmm. or at least to mock it. So I really do appreciate that Versus is staying consistent. Luda had hits for days. Mm-hmm. Nelly's Wi-Fi was shorting out, but like even pixelated Nelly is sexy as fuck like 8-bit yeah. Nelly Nelly adapted for Atari was still like chef's kiss <laughs> yeah it was a reminder that Luda has so many hits uh, hits but also jams yes you know I think Nelly has hits but Ludacris has like jams that I want to vibe to mm-hmm. did Gossip uh, Folks come up uh, he didn't play Gossip Folks but he did play Minuteman Oh, hell yes. Go. Okay, good for yeah. us. Good for you guys. Yeah, um, with, a sh- with a shout out to um, Missy. Mm-hmm. One, I do love the community of it because it feels very much like black folks are just getting together and still live tweeting and finding ways to connect on Twitter yeah. uh, throughout this, and it's happening every week. Unfortunately, there was a moment where, where Nelly's Wi-Fi wasn't working and Luda was playing like that new that was unreleased song of his. Yuck. Throw that up. That line where it was like, I still love R. Kelly. And it was like, what? Yeah. And then I, he it, ran it back. Yeah, he played it like three times. And then the lyric after that is like, I love R. Kelly. I just won't let him around my daughters. Like something around yeah. that. Yeah. He like still acknowledges the abuse, but is cool with it. Like, yeah, it was it was very disgusting. It was a disgusting moment. And also it was kind of entertaining watching Ludacris have an anxiety attack because you can see he's not comfortable handling any situation other than like you know making music and rapping and just didn't have that the wherewithal to be like i'm gonna entertain on live while nelly figures out his internet and nelly was like it's raining in st louis it's raining over here so uh, that's why my wi-fi is bad like nigga what and unfortunately <laughs> there from 2017 there are also some buzzfeed reports of um multiple rape allegations against Nelly. So (laughs) I expect more out of people who make Vanna White references (sighs) and rap. (laughs) Things we didn't know. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Grim. So yeah, that I watched that. Of course, Sunday gave us the like wrap up of The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. So I watched that and Mm. by far episode nine was the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life. Because Michael Jordan tries to tell everyone that during one of his games against Utah, right before he was really sick, um, he was poisoned by a Utah pizza place, a local pizza place, and that they were all out to get him, and they sent four or five men to his hotel room, and they gave him a pizza that made him sick. So... That's a little bit of his insight. Might be some revisionist history. Might be some propaganda. I don't know. I have opinions. (laughs) Nobody's willing to entertain me on them, though. I want that um, 
draw room murder mystery, though, right? Like Michael Jordan <laughs> as a detective trying to figure out who was murdered by a poison pizza. Yes. And he gathers everyone on the basketball court and does like the whole, and you, and you, but the killer was you. Now, did I hear this correctly, that they never bring up his time with the Washington Wizards? They don't. Yeah, so I was going to bring up the fact that I really love The Last Dance, mm-hmm. but I do also agree with Ken Burns that it's not proper journalism. 100%. Ken Burns isn't British. Uh, I don't know why I said that, but he did say proper journalism, I believe. Uh, just because... <laughs> I discussed when we first talked about Last Dance, right, you know, that um, the whole sort of contract was that it could be released, all that footage, when Michael Jordan agreed to it. And he's listed as a producer. So, unfortunately, it's not going to get into the nitty-gritty of Michael, you know, just Mm -hmm. because, like, he's a producer and he could sanitize some of it. And, yeah, it mentions his golf. But literally pretends like his time at the Wizards did not happen. Right, exactly. And then also the story around like Isaiah Thomas and the 1992 Olympic team, like it makes it out to be that they didn't tiff the way that they did and that, you know, Michael Jordan Mm -hmm. wasn't an antagonist in the way that he was. So, you know, like you said, you know, when they're, when he's. The gambling too. Yeah. The gambling stuff was very sanitized. It was all a lot. But that, at the end of the day, I yeah. still really enjoyed the documentary. I thought it was really good. I think it might get nominated for an Oscar, but I don't think it was as good as other sports documentaries that we've gotten. So mostly the OJ one, but that's mm. a special case. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of romantic dramas that Lewis was talking about before, I dipped into the romantic side of Scorsese this week. Oh, which okay. one? Yeah, well, so I watched Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore for the first time. Which is a very crazy character for Ellen Burstyn. Uh, great performance. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think that Roger Ebert actually praised it a lot because it gave Ellen a role to sort of live in mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, the way she was in, like, The Exorcist um, or uh, Last Picture Show, right? Correct, yep. She's so great in it. And uh, Chris Christopherson's in it. He's fantastic. I think of him as like a BG for straight people. Totally. Um, Mm -hmm. And Harvey Keitel's in it. And that man is fine. I know. People forget. like In his 20s in that film, he is hot. It makes sense that um, like Whoopi's character was with him in the beginning of Sister Act (laughs) as opposed to what we think Harvey Keitel looks like now. There's an entire class of actors where we forget that in their 20s they were smoking hot. I wouldn't say people have forgotten this, but if you watch Warren Beatty's old movies, he's one of the hottest people who ever lived. Whereas if you watch him in Shampoo or Heaven Can Wait, he looks good, but not Mm -hmm. especially eye-popping. Baby, I watched Splendor in the Grass the other week because it was on Turner Classic Movies. (laughs) Hottest man who ever lived, yes. Don't we get a young Jodie Foster? Paul Newman would like a word, but uh, he's so, Warren Beatty was so hot. I was like, I see why you were fucking him, Madonna. Right, exactly. No, when Madonna did an interview once with Howard Stern talking about the Warren Beatty era, and you can tell she was still sort of in awe of him like 30 years on, I totally get it. Yes, young Jodie Foster is in that movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was sort of going on a sort of Scorsese rewatch, and I'm watching the ones I've never seen and rewatching the ones that I don't remember. Because um, for me, like if I saw like a film in high school or like early college, I don't remember it well How enough yeah. to have do it. So uh, I, that's why I rewatched uh, Taxi Driver and I rewatched Casino last night. Mm. But um, romantic drama, I watched for the first time The Age of Innocence, which is mm. hot. Oh, I know it's hot. And also another movie that... Daniel Day-Lewis, so sexy as young, but even sexier 
in the documentary um, on the making of where he just has like a beard and an ascot and looks modern because Daniel only does period pieces. Right. He That's a movie that casually has some of the most beautiful people who have ever been on the silver screen in it. You know, just mm-hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer looking unreal, <sighs> Winona Ryder looking unreal. Richard Grant is in it. The Winona thing, by the way, I just want to bring up, there was a woman who responded to my tweet that I was watching The Age of Innocence, and she said, oh, such a beautiful movie, except for Winona Ryder. And I was like, excuse me? And I said, we respect Miss Ryder in this house, baby. And she said, she can't act her way out of a paper bag. (laughs) And then typed, runs away. I'm like, listen, bitch. (laughs) There's this whole class of people who think that just because they don't like Winona in Stranger Things, somehow she's always been an awful actress. And I just want to say that that is not true. Yeah. I would compare her to Kristen Stewart, which is to say she is very capable in a certain string. Like, if you watch Clouds of Sils Maria, Kristen Stewart is mm-hmm. great. However, there is a stiltedness and a... Mm-hmm. Occasionally, the look in her eyes is just blank to me. So I think she vacillates in and out of good performances sometimes. I would say it works in Age of Innocence because she's supposed to be playing this sort of meat character who you then mm-hmm. realize has manipulated Daniel Day-Lewis out of his relationship with Michelle Pfeiffer, Mm -hmm. they were writing more roles suited to an actress like her in the 80s. Right, the moodiness, the sardonicness. Yeah, in Beetlejuice and like Heather's, like you don't really see the, her role on Stranger Things isn't that. She's supposed to be like this nervous mother who's like constantly crying about her son, right? And like she doesn't have that sort of attitude Mm -hmm. that she should have. Like, she should be playing, like, an Edie Britt kind of character. I don't think Stranger Things is necessarily suited to her talents, personally. I don't think Stranger Things is suited to a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> like like being good, yeah. Uh, for one. I'm glad that this is being talked about here, because I had to experience Stranger Things pre-Keep It podcast, and just looking at all my friends being like, what is this? Why the are we... The first season is white excellence. The first season is white <laughs> excellence. The rest of it, sort of a mess. Yeah. It should have been a movie! Anyway, I guess that's it. Wrapping up, I will say that speaking of romantic trilogies, you know which one I've never seen? Hmm. Bridget Jones. Any of them? Any of them. I will say once you've seen the first one, I think you can kind of gather what comes next. But I mean... I've seen the third one, I think, in the waiting room of like a doctor's office and was like, Patrick Dempsey's in this? What? Mm-hmm. And then just like kept, kept it moving. I feel like Renee is somebody we can always stand to revisit because movies like Nurse Betty just haven't stuck in the cultural mm-hmm. imagination as much. One of my first yeah. films, yes. Rewatched Nurse Betty the other week, and people do not remember that she makes out with Morgan Freeman in that movie. Woof. Oh, that's imprinted in my memory. Disgusting. There's no way. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> when we're back, David Diggs. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. After pulling double duty as both Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson in Hamilton on Broadway, 
and scoring a Grammy and a Tony in the process, our new guest became a fixture on big and small screens because you can currently catch him on TNT Snowpiercer, an adaptation of the Bong Joon-ho film Snowpiercer. It is a post-apocalyptic thriller following the passengers of the Snowpiercer, a giant perpetually moving train that circles the globe and carrying the remnants of humanity seven years after it became a frozen wasteland. Welcome, David. Uh, congrats uh, on being our first Tony winner here, as Lewis mentioned earlier. Hello. Hello. <laughs> we really believe in the sanctity of awards around here. Like, you know, it's yeah. better better than God and religion, et cetera. So really, it's, this, this, yeah, is a, yeah. this is a spiritual fulfillment for us. <laughs> I, 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 I totally understand. I totally get it. We all do it for the awards. <laughs> <laughs> How is it going in the midst of this quarantine? I feel like I interviewed you for Playboy literally weeks before I know. this happened. How crazy. That was a great interview, by the way. Thank you for that. That was really. Oh, thank you. They're not. They're not often good ones, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when they are, it's it's dope. Um, things are things are good. I, you know, as good as like other than the crippling anxiety, I think um, everything's everything's pretty smooth. Like I, I'm still crazy busy, which I don't think is the goal, but happens to be true and allows me to sort of just keep focused on things and keep feeling like I'm producing things, which is great. I have, like, I'm super fortunate. I have a great place to be sheltered in. Look at this wallpaper. Like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm with my girlfriend and that's amazing. You know, we never get to spend this much time together. So there are so many yeah. like upsides to my current situation. Mm-hmm. The major downside being like, I don't see a a way out yet and we have no actual leadership in this country so you know yeah (laughs) for people who can't see it by the way the background is very exquisite it's very rainforest cafe with chic yes (laughs) (laughs) this lily's in harlem sort of vibe (laughs) (laughs) this is actually this room has been appearing on a lot of you know morning shows and talk shows and stuff and every time it happens my mom goes that's my room because whenever <laughs> she stays here she she stays in this room. <laughs> that has been the weirdest thing about this pandemic you know just the the insight into people's homes you know yeah uh, and seeing just like where people live and normally we would not see that unless it was an architectural digest spray. Mm-hmm. yeah it's funny i you know early on i started because I was getting all these requests in for podcasts or, or interviews or whatever. And I, I would like be in a different room in the house every time, you know, just trying to like <laughs> spice it up, spice it up. And then my girlfriend was like, will you stop showing our house to the world? And you're like, what are you doing? Like, just go outside and do it in front of our address. Why don't you? Yeah. I was, all right, solid, solid point. I remain so disturbed by when we saw Meryl Streep perform Ladies Who Lunch with Christine Baranski and Audra McDonald, because I shouldn't know anything about her home. It really frightens me that I had that level of intimacy with her. It's weird. There is too much access, turns out. (laughs) Okay, well, we have to talk about Snowpiercer, because one, when I watched this show, it occurred to me, my memory of the movie is strong for a couple of reasons, namely Tilda Swinton, who I is just one of my all-time 
favorite performers anyway. So to move the plot along and and I think cleverly change it so that the protagonist is a detective, I I was just uh, interested in how they could transfer that strange and loopy grittiness to a episodes long show. So when you prepared for this role, did you watch the movie at all or watch it several times or not care? <laughs> no, I watched it, um, you know, early on when I was sent the a pilot script, I, I had never seen it and I hadn't, I didn't know anything about it. So I watched the movie and then I realized that that was based on some graphic novels. So I read those graphic novels. It was all before I even auditioned for the thing, just cause I'm, uh, in the task of making the decision whether or not to do a project, uh, like I, I'm a nerd and I know how betrayed I feel when something I'm a fan of like gets fucked up basically. So I, um, so it was mostly me doing my due diligence to make sure that um, whatever the show was trying to do was going to feel substantively different from the existing versions of it so that it, it didn't have to live up to a thing. Um, and it felt like it did to me. It felt like it was do. It was attempting at least to do a thing that is the reason to make something in a TV show, which is to sort of more deeply explore some of the underlying issues that that particularly the film brings up, but that you have to sort of run by by the virtue of a of a ninety minute time limit and like a, a heist setup. So that's what excited me about the project. You know, we would we would sort of talk about the film and the and the graphic novels on set all the time but just as sort of like interest if there were interesting parallels coming up but we didn't ever feel like we had to look at it for character or for plot they i think they sort of smartly set this in a different time than either of those things take place and allowed it to sort of be its own world one of the things i want to ask you about too is uh this is a piece that actually didn't even make it to the interview because we uh had to cut stuff for a time was working with Jennifer Connelly. I know that we, I, you told me, you know, a lot about um, learning from her on set. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we, when we were watching it, we were like, oh yeah, there she is. You know, like an actress that we love. Um, and it's nice seeing her in this forefront again. Um, what was it like just working with her on set? Because, um, you know, you had a really fun story about that. Before. Oh yeah, I don't remember what story I told you, but she's uh, <laughs> but she's you know she is like the most prepared actor I've ever worked with, um, and uh, I'm not. So I, you know, like I, I did a lot of just learning from her. I mean, if I had to do a scene with Jennifer, like kind of the goal was like just don't get showed up too much. You know, like she like I, I don't know. I like punching above my weight a little bit like she's better than me by any metric I think by any of my own personal like metrics she's been doing it longer and she has more techniques and she's capable of very easily accessing things that take me a long time and a lot of effort to to access and um and I like I like working with people like that and um and she's such a giving performer and and actor and what I generally do as a stage performer is trust my directors so much mm-hmm. to sort of set up everything. But it's different in TV because the directors are in and out. The actors are the only people who are there the whole time, really. So it makes sense that it kind of falls on you to to set the tone and the atmosphere. And like that tends to fall on the people who are high up, who have, you know, are one and two or one, two and three on a call sheet. Like that's sort of your job is to make sure that the environment is conducive to actually getting work done. And Jennifer does that 
so well and I, I aspire to be that good at such things. I have to say though, I find Jennifer Connelly, generally speaking, intimidating seeming. I literally worked this out on Twitter one day. I, I was like, is it that she seems mean or does she just have long straight hair? I can't tell. <laughs> long straight black hair, yeah. Yes. It's the dark hair. And it's I, the uh, Shigo effect. One of my favorite movies of the 2000s is Little Children, where I think that's my favorite role of hers period. <laughs> it, was she intimidating as well as uh, educational in terms of her experience? Y yes, until her daughter came to set one time. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, the, okay. I get like <laughs> the way that she loves her kids. And that's also like most of what she talks about if we're not shooting is her kids. Like she <laughs> loves her kids so much. And that was like, oh, that's the side of this you don't get to see. Just made sense. Like she's an incredible mom in the same way that she's an incredible actor, you know. David, I know that like none of us could have predicted that Snowpiercer's release would have coincided with the world ending, mm -hmm. but um, <laughs> you know, like, and you know, since the train is a metaphor very clearly for capitalism and class, and you guys are actually like dispelling a lot of strong questions in Snowpiercer, how how do you hope people will receive watching Snowpiercer right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's tricky right now. I hope that people are first and foremost entertained because I, mm -hmm. I don't know like what we need more than that that I can give necessarily. But beyond that, you know, the ideas that it brings up about how capitalism does not work the same for everybody by design and how, you know, particularly when it starts to interact with resource scarcity, how that may be not is not the best way to live um, <laughs> is or at least at the very least is something that should be examined is an important thing that I think we're all thinking about right now because because we interact with it on a on a daily basis. I do think those are important to think about, and I hope that people are not depressed by them so much as mm -hmm. as just aware of and and, <laughs> and and inspired by, particularly you know in an election year coming up on a on a very important election, which. Uh, <laughs> No, you know, no matter how ambivalent you are about your particular candidate, like is going to set the tone for the next very long time in this country. <laughs> Talking a bit too about your work in theater, which you brought up, Hamilton is also coming out soon, and people are going to be able to see that July third. July third. I feel like that was such a big internet phenomenon too in a yeah. way that theater hadn't been before like we saw some of it again with like slave play but you mm -hmm. know like everyone talking about it and uh what's it feel like now you know to feel like that uh, particularly in this era now you know like it was already going to come out but like now it's coming out well everyone's home like it's sort of this democratization of hamilton mm -hmm. you know like so many people who have been obsessed with the music can see it now if they couldn't get to New York to see it before or it hadn't toured where they were. Yeah, I am. The the democratization of it is is the best part of it, I think. I You know, for a long time, particularly early on, you know, while I was still doing it, it was such a weird sort of status symbol to have seen Hamilton, you know? Yeah. And like, it like, <laughs> was just this thing that rich people talk about at parties, like, well... Did you see Hamilton? You know, and then after <laughs> the cast turned over, it's like, well, I saw it with the original cast. So, and what I like about this coming out is that it's like, fuck you. Now everybody will have seen it with most of the original cast. So <laughs> 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 now you don't have, you have to find something else to brag to your friends about. 
And, like, it seems like the thing still makes people really happy. Like, I don't know. Just yeah. granted, like, my DMs are skewed for shit that people <laughs> want to talk to me about. But, like, uh, I still, like, every day the amount of people who just will write something about that they've been listening to the cast album or whatever or something that the music has done for them. Like, people use it in a way that I never had thought of <laughs> particularly like a musical soundtrack to be used, like kids getting ready for their tests or like gearing up, people gearing up for auditions or going into job interviews. Like people are using it as like get hype music, like inspiration music. And that <laughs> there's, there's something really nice about that. And so I think it coming out now when, when um, influxes of joy are, are particularly valuable, I'm, I'm happy about that. Mm-hmm. The part that scares me about it is that I'm going to have to watch myself do it at some point. And I've never <laughs> seen myself do that. And I, I hate watching myself do things. And it is the thing I have done that still the m- most people talk about. And I think the only reason I'm able to sort of stay in public and like not just melt into a little ball anytime anyone talks about it is because I haven't seen it. So I don't have to form an opinion (laughs) on what I did. Uh, Whereas now I'm going to have to do that, which will be very, very difficult. But it's in the world of champagne problems, I guess. (laughs) You mentioned earlier how when you're in the theater, a big part of what you do is just trusting your director. Do you remember in the conversations with your director ahead of Hamilton um, premiering, any particular conversation that made it dawn on you that this was going to be like a theater altering event? Do you have any specific interaction where you thought like, oh, wait, something else is happening here that is not just, you know, the theater I've been acquainted with so far? No. And this is the the sort of the brilliant thing about Tommy Kale, I think, um, as a director and a human and like a, a friend as someone who I just now I just call when I, you know, them stressed out. Uh, he is very good at protecting the thing. Um, and so we in re- rehearsals felt like any other rehearsal. And he was so careful, even through the years of like the development phases when we were doing sort of workshops or sing-throughs or whatever. He was so careful about who was allowed to see it and when they were allowed to see it. And he would manage that up to the day. Like there were moments where we were supposed to have kind of relatively public presentations of a bunch of songs that we've worked on. And he would sort of the day of be like, man, the songs aren't quite where we want to let that many people in yet. So he would just say, we're going to sing this for us. I told everybody to go home. So when it did become this, what it what it became for me, it was (laughs) pretty shocking. Uh, <laughs> to sort of like every every time there's a new you know article written about it or more celebrities backstage or something, it was just like this is a play, guys. I don't know what y'all <laughs> thought it was like. This actually, actually, it's just a play. I don't know. <laughs> I really do think of it also as a celebrity event, though. Like, weirdly, I remember seeing Rosie O'Donnell on the then-new Match Game saying, I've seen it 14 times or something. Yes. And then it occurred to me, like, you, you talked about it being a status conversation, but also, like, this thing where it, it got celebrities who normally are just promoting their own stuff talking about popular art with each other in front of us. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was ever strange. Like, who have you ever seen talk about Hamilton that, I'll say, blew your mind? <laughs> You know, like I have been on, like Steph Curry had a has a great show, Five Minutes from Home. 
had like a great mm-hmm. web series. And like, I have been on that because of Hamilton, you know, that is like, that is, <laughs> those kinds of things blow my mind. Like that my, I have, am having interactions with heroes of mine totally outside of the world of, of theater or even performance really like athletes <laughs> <laughs> who are like obsessed like he tells me he plays my shot like warming up for basketball games like that is so <laughs> dorky <laughs> and also like so amazing right like what how, how is that even possible and then like hang out with his family and like his kids are singing the Skylar Sisters song to me. It's like, what a wild world, you know? Even early on, we did a, a BET cipher for the BET Awards that year. Like there was a Hamilton cipher with like me and Lynn and Black Thought. <laughs> and, uh, I've been a rapper my whole life. If you had were to tell me that I had to go to Broadway to get on a fucking BET cipher. Like, <laughs> with Black Thought. <laughs> that doesn't make any yeah. sense. You know what I'm saying? Like the... The way that it sort of permeated popular culture mm-hmm. is like very rare for as any like theater practitioner will tell you that does not happen very often mm-hmm. um, and maybe has never happened in a way like that because I don't know that we have had a show where the point of it where somewhere baked into the fabric of it was this idea of inclusivity in the same way. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is weird and still feels weird. And not even inclusivity in the sense of, like, that is the concept of the show, you know? Right. Like, not in theme. It's like, this is the way it's presented, which which yeah. I think helped to make it really sort of more universal, particularly to, like, what, theater kids, you know? Like, yeah. people who love it so much growing up, you know? It's like, it reminds you of high school or college when, like, you could play any role, right? Yeah. You know? And that, that changes... When you go into the real world, you know, Uh, and it's like you can't always play every single role that you would maybe be cast in as a kid. And so I think that, you know, it's this idea of theater being for everyone. And I do like that now, like so many people can see it. Has this sort of period changed how you're even approaching the art you want to make now or how you want to get art to people? just because of this coronavirus shit? It has, it's been a, I think I was in a lot of ways kind of spiraling towards a very necessary slowdown. You know, when we talked, Ira, I was like running around like crazy anyway. And we, the right before this shutdown, I was on this crazy sort of loop between Vancouver, where we're still shooting Snowpiercer, the second season. And then uh, I was flying to London working on something I'm not allowed to talk about and then coming back to uh, coming, you're the new Spider-Man we got it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and then and then LA also for either press stuff or um, recording sessions for Central Park or you know any of the various Bob's Burgers or any of the other like animated projects I'm working on and then while I was in LA I would have like four or five other meetings that I had been putting off because I was outside of LA. So it was just this kind of crazy time with too much travel um, and this crazy sort of split focus where I was always having to sleep on an airplane and land and just kind of wake up into a new mode. And it was pretty unsustainable 
Um, and also like making me not particularly good at anything. I was doing a lot, but I don't know how much of it w was really good. And particularly in the things, some things that are really important to me, like music making, like it was so hard, so hard to write a song uh, when uh, for me, when I am not sitting down at all, you know? And then other, you know, personal life things, obviously like my relationship with my partner was struggling. That's, that's hard to be away from each other like that. What this time has really done, I think, is made me kind of try to figure out how I can still participate in a lot of things, but like be smarter about the way I am participating and be a little more realistic with myself about my capacity. So um, I've taken on like some more producing side things, um, you know, helping folks develop scripts or even just getting them placed places using kind of my, the sort of what I have been gaining a lot over the last few years is a better understanding of how things get made and what different studios or production entities or whatever are looking for. Um, and I have a lot more connections than I used to have. I just know more people. Um, and so that becomes really useful when friends of mine have great projects that should get made, but like no nobody knows who they are, but they know who I am. So I, all I have to do is make an introduction and then fade into the background, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I have the capacity for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm trying to, to refocus in that way and probably do a, a more behind the scenes and less in front of a camera um, and just less traveling, seeing what else I can do from either where I am or wherever my partner is, because she's in the business too. And if she has to go shoot somewhere, I'll go there. If I'm not shooting something, I'd rather maximize our, our time together. One final question. When you see a Lin-Manuel Miranda tweet that ends with good night, do you say good night back to it? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I t I, every time I see one, I call him and I say good night. He's talking what... directly to me. So I, I, I tuck Lin in most nights. Okay, good. I, I was worried. Yeah. It really is. He's reaching out. He wants everybody to do that. <laughs> Each one a cry for help. Noted. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, David, for yeah, being here. Yeah, thanks for here. coming. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, to talk to you again. Yeah. Everyone should watch The Snowpiercer. It's on <laughs> Sunday nights. TNT. TNT. Thanks, David. Thanks for coming on. Um, thank you, guys. This was really fun. Let's do it again anytime. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. As the class of 2020 graduates into a world beset by a global pandemic and economic anxiety and unprecedented unemployment, I will say, welcome to me and Lewis's graduation years. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the same. Uh, <laughs> I, I graduated they from. were a nightmare. <laughs> I, gra I graduated from journalism school in 2008, and the commencement address was like, why the fuck did you major in journalism? <laughs> That's so disrespectful. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, and I graduated in 2011 um, after that financial crisis from graduate school, and mm-hmm. Bill Clinton was our speaker. Oh, and damn. a lot of and a lot of it was like, so no jobs, <laughs> financial crisis. Anyway, we, welcome to the world. What are y'all uh, gonna do? <laughs> but. Um, the class of 2020, uh, because they have been hunkered down at home, thanks to stay-at-home orders, has had everyone and their mother emerging on Zoom to give them advice. You know, they're getting their commencement speeches broadcast to the world. There are a few highlights. Sure. And there are a few what-the-fuck Definitely Moments. a lot of what the fucks. Overall, I'm a little bit disappointed at how many celebrity commencement addresses I've seen rely on the idea that the graduation isn't what's important. Like, mm-hmm. they haven't taken much away from you. It's like, when you're an adult, your life is demarcated by fewer gigantic events like that. So, no, something has been taken from you. Let's be clear. Yes. Mm-hmm. And acknowledge yeah. that. Yeah. Let's first talk about these memorable commencement speeches before we sort of launch into a convo about commencement speeches in general. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there is Barack Obama's speech, which <laughs> was fine on an Obama scale speech, right? I mean, he's done better, but it wasn't actually awful. I did not need a Tiger King reference. No. I don't. Mm-hmm. I never. I never out. need it. <laughs> and they like multiple speeches that we're about to talk about. Reference Tiger King. Why? What? Who is that for? Whoever they hired to do the speech writing was like, <laughs> that's what the kids like. They're watching Tiger Yuck. King. I feel like it was mostly kids as parents and um, people our age watching Tiger King. But anyway. Yeah, I liked Obama's uh, main speech. Though the part where he allegedly drags Trump and says a lot of so-called grown-ups <sighs> out there. I mean, that's a little... I thought that was a little immature for addressing 18 and 22-year-olds. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The thing about Obama is that he always wants to drag Trump, and it's always figuring out a way that he can do it. And sometimes he's good at it, and this one I felt like was just sort of weirdly worded. It was meek, and he didn't want the speech to feel like a tirade against Trump. I get it. Mm-hmm. It just, yeah. there, there's something about the phrase so-called grown-ups that feels like, you know, a, a Rugrats TV sequel. <laughs> 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 the Obama one, I mean, again, I think it was like lacking a level of compassion that I think these children need and probably deserve, and I know that, I don't think that Obama just missed them. I think that they still look at Obama as a figure that, uh, that they could glean something from. My favorite one was LeBron James's, I think, out of all of them that I listened to. At least his had like a call to action. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And he went out of his way to be like, center this around community. Like, yeah, you can't go outside right now, but outside and your nearest people, the people around you and the community that you have is all that we can really focus our energy on. And that was endearing to me. And his hairline was looking right for the first time in a while. So I eat it. I love don't don't be dra- don't be dragging bronze hairline. I'm like he tried. I'm it. like, what you think of mine? <laughs> you know who addressed everybody with the dignity that was expected. But if I were her, I would have gone nasty. Is Malala? She said. Ooh. Uh, the class. Of, <laughs> she Ooh. said the class of 2020 won't be defined by what we lost to this virus, but by how we responded to it. The world yes. is yours now, and I can't wait to see what you make of it. If I were Malala, I'd be like. When I was your age, I had a Nobel Prize, sweetie. <laughs> and look at you now, stuck in a goddamn living room. You Crying will never be me. Yeah. 
Oh, Malala. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it does bring up the idea of what commencement speeches should be for, right? I mean, like, we've all experienced them. Mm-hmm. I don't really recall my high school commencement speech at all. Uh, I do know that our dean of students, Mr. Bob Herman gave that commencement speech. And I I do remember that at one point he was a silver fox and I liked looking at him. Did not like hearing him speak, though. He sort of droned on like a robot. That's what high school is all about. Not paying attention to who's up there, but knowing that they're hot. That's what life is. Yes. (laughs) The class of 2020, yes, you're at home. Yes, there's a lot of this shit going on. But let me tell you, you, you do not want to experience several hours of sitting somewhere while multiple people talk forever. Commencement speeches are long as fuck. Graduation ceremonies are long as fuck. Yeah. This will contradict the advice I have to graduates that we'll get to in a second, but (laughs) I was surprised how little I remembered the content of some of the speeches other than somebody made a long extended choose your own adventure metaphor to which I say, I already knew life was about making choices. So you did a bad job here. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> I, um, my high school, I very unfortunately do remember it. My high school commencement speech was from Pete Ricketts. Well, it was last year. <laughs> Leave me alone. It was actually five years ago. And I had to grace the stage with that half turtle, half man, Pete Ricketts. Wow. And he gave Ooh. a very meandering speech. about Well, because we we're supposed to have a poet laureate come, the Nebraska poet laureate. But then he dropped out last minute. And we got that uh, walking Q-tip, Pete Ricketts. So, yeah, I mean, he tried his best. He really did. Who did? Do you guys remember who you had for your college commencement speeches? I've tried looking up the information. I specifically think that Brian Grazer talked to the Tisch commencement at NYU. Like you're you're in different schools, and then there's the larger graduation at the larger graduation bill clinton spoke okay that was at the baseball stadium but at javits center i'm pretty sure it was brian grazer but i've tried googling it and cannot find <laughs> anything about that speech i specifically think i remember it was brian grazer because i think his daughter was graduating at the time so that's why he spoke if brian grazer didn't bring up his wife Gigi lavangi grazer who wrote the movie <laughs> stepmom and also hosted <laughs> The logo reality series, The Arrangement, about arranging flowers, it was not worth it. (laughs) Uh, But Bill Clinton's speech is actually a very memorable one. It's listed on Forbes and Esquire's uh, list of, like, best commencement speeches. Um, It was really just a speech, you know, sort of about how, like, the current world that we live in is unequal and unstable. We had come off that financial crisis that happened uh, when Obama first became president, like 2009. And um, if a lot, looking back on that speech, so many of the similarities between then and now were uh, very stark. You know, like quotes like, the world is unstable, not just because violence can cross borders and non-state actors can cause trouble, but because disease can cross borders, because the financial crisis, which sadly began here, spread almost instantaneously, first to the United Kingdom, then to Ireland, then to Iceland, then to the exporting countries because the people couldn't afford to buy their products. You know, it's talking about how a financial crisis was um, instigated here and sort of spread globally. And it's talking about disease and um, things that, were on our minds then and really should have been on the minds of a competent administration now, Mm -hmm. um, but is not. And that ownership, too, 
of our role in so many of those things is refreshing because, I mean, we didn't talk about that stand-up comedian from The Creek, uh, Ben Sass. Oh, from Aida's neck of the wood. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. I, what I a baffling speech. What a baffling speech because he was definitely – this guy goes on an extended metaphor about gym class where he disses gym teachers and, and then his says, father. Correct. And <laughs> then says, like, climb the rope. We all remember climbing a rope. Some of you don't remember climbing a rope. Like, it, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. And it never lands on funny. Also implies that, like, oh, classes now don't know what ropes are. I'm pretty sure they still have the rope in gym class, but also says that older generations were fitter yeah. than current generations. I'm like, Really? Younger generations are doing CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, he called them unfit. He calls them lazy. He calls them like, and he calls them lazy while we're in a pandemic, like makes jokes about them kind of like being couch potatoes in a way. Sir, where am I supposed to go to receive this information? I only have <laughs> one room. And the thing with Ben Sass is, so I do remember meeting Ben Sass when I was still in Nebraska. And I want you guys to know his hands are cold to the touch. He might, <laughs> you don't he say. Might, yeah, he might be a reptile as well. That might be the he, theme for He looks exactly like the Midwestern man that the really hot girl you know from high school ends up marrying instead of the mm-hmm. hot guy that she dated in high school. <laughs> wow. That's very ac- very accurate. Very Thank you for that poem accurate. about the suburbs you just recited. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> just call me Arcade Fire. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm looking at Ben Sass's history too. First, I like I hate this Republican talking point of adopting rhetoric of lazy um, Gen Z millennials, etc., as if he was um, in the war. It's like you, you, <laughs> oh, you it's, uh, like or even like like waxing poetic about the war, like they're fucking Ernest Hemingway. It's like, yeah. bitch, you you were not in the military, so. What is this whole thing about, like, oh, we were more fit than you, and it's like, you're all lazy. Sir, you're 48. Also, (laughs) the entire idea of, like, one generation having more, whatever, experience or anything than a younger generation is just pathetic and age-old. And, like, the Mm -hmm. same story we've been telling ourselves for 100 years. And there's so many people online trying to, like, recently there was someone in the UK, like, waxing poetic about, like, World War II and shit like that. Like, this sort of myth that... Everyone in original world wars was like lining up on the front line to lay down their lives for their country. I'm like, pick up a fucking book. Wars have been <laughs> protested for generations. Also, there's this idea that he's supposed to be the young voice of the Republican Party. He's not old as fuck like most old white men who are in the Republican Party. And so <laughs> I could see why he was trying to joke um, because it's like he seems like someone who's trying to stick in the minds of youth because he's planning like maybe a presidential run or something like that in the future. But the whole blaming China, so many times, the weird thing about the name Jeremy, I just didn't get it. And it reminds me why Republicans aren't funny. (laughs) Um, And I sort of don't want to see him again, but I'm pretty sure we will, judging from that speech. It's a certain thing that I think also goes along with being a conservative or being a Republican, which is a lack of awareness, which is what you need to be like a funny person. So it was very uncomfortable, but unfortunately it's not unlike my experience with old white men in Nebraska, and I'm sure you guys can speak to this because it's a very common Midwest sentiment, but it was the most Ben Sass speech 
that I think he could have given. <laughs> yeah. Well, also to Aida's point, a big part of being funny is wanting to relate to other people as opposed mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. taking all your toys and going home, which is, you know, the motto of the Republican Party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And really just sort of speaking down to people, too. Unfortunately, I do think the best commencement moment w- w- belongs to Cardi B, who said, don't let no coronavirus or no nothing <laughs> take this special moment from you. That's all you need. <laughs> That's it. That's it. She's truly been the public speaker of our time. I remember what she says every time. Cardi could run for president. Cardi could run for president and I might not vote for her, but I would hesitate. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> I would think about it. You would respect You'd be the thought. girl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would donate money so that she could be on the ballot. <laughs> yes. I want to see her make it to the top. I do. Yeah, she deserves to be in the primary. <laughs> so what guy, What advice do you guys have for actual graduates? Do we have anything we want to say to young people who are unfortunately going to deal with the world, which I don't recommend, but okay. I feel goofy giving graduates any advice, but I will try my best. I really want them to know that like, and you know, this is probably what you guys experienced too coming out into the you know economic crisis or after it is that that by nature of being in that thing, you are the most resilient class of people that have come like since anyone before you. So I think that these kids are going to be like they're going to operate on a totally different level of innovation than we I think we've ever even been forced to. I just want them to take the skills and the knowledge that they've learned and try to turn that into something that is modern and capable for this this time that we're living in. But they got it. They'll be fine. I would say that history is not something to be afraid of. You know, a lot of older people for generations are always going to be talking down to younger people saying that our generation was doing something different, you know, your generation is a little bit lazier, um, you're in your sweatpants at home, <laughs> etc. But I would say that learn from generations before you and keep, you know, moving forward with your own innovation, you know. I think that um, young people will always be smart, always be the future of this country, and I think that whatever you need to do um to forge your path in the world is right for you you know you look at how even the three of us would have the careers that we have now the the, that wasn't the path for so many other people and i think that you create your own avenues something like this a podcast what didn't even exist in this form Mm -hmm. when we graduated Television writing didn't exist the way it did now with all sorts of digital platforms uh, back even in 2008 when I first graduated from college. So, you know, just look around at what you would like to do and find whatever way you can to make that happen. And build a community too, you know? You're not the only person going through this. There are so many other people who are experiencing this very fraught moment. Uh, my one piece of advice for everybody, and you, this is something I actually do, is uh, <laughs> remember everything. It's a good rule of thumb, whether you're exhilarated or devastated or things are working out for you or not working out for you or you're just fucking bored. Be like Joan Didion with her damn notebooks. Find a way to remember even the minute things about your life because I feel like it all adds up to something and eventually one day you may need it for a book or a podcast or a game show where Jane Fonda is your literal teammate. (laughs) This is my life. (laughs) 
Sometimes I yes. feel like I'm the only person who remembers the mediocre biopic DeLovely, but I know that mm-hmm. Kevin Klein Slade and we got an Alanis Morissette cover of Let's Do It, Let's Fall in Love. Everything is worth something. So train yourself to remember. Don't rely on Wikipedia to remember it for you. Your life's an accumulation and your memory makes it great. Yeah. Um, definitely agree with what you just said. I think it was when Aida and I talked about David Sedaris in a previous podcast, uh, thinking about a humorist who writes about their life in such amazing uh, and introspective detail uh, sort of inspired me to remember to write things down. Yeah. You know? I truly, the only thing I regret are things I don't remember because I truly got nothing from them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wish I could dig up my old live journal oh. where Ooh. I would write things down after school every day. I'm sure it would be embarrassing, but it would also be a reminder of the emotions that I was going through. I want to read about all my mundane like fourth grade crushes and like I would like write down every time they looked at me. That is the type of that's the level of detail I'm trying to find. <laughs> <laughs> all right, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Things are going to get kept. We're ready for another one of Aida's lies. (laughs) This one I can promise you. What are you pretending to keep this week? (laughs) This one I promise you is true and consistent and will remain this way because this man has continued to fail me for the past three albums now. Now, I know that I come here and complain about rappers a lot, but that's because I have so much faith in the rap boys, but they always fail me, especially recently. And I don't know if it's because this is the like natural curve of becoming a rapper where you work really hard at the beginning and then you get success and you stop working hard and you just release whatever. It's like a natural laziness. But Future's new album came out, and I don't know if you boys are Future fans. I would assume you're not, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Are you done? Now. Now. Who knows? You know I'm a Future fan. <laughs> I know you like ignorance, so I should have yes. I should have allowed that. I've seen Future Live. Really? How was that? <laughs> it was fine. It was, it was cute. Fun. It was cute. It I was really. Fun. It was. It, I think it was at Outside Lands in SF. Mm, okay. I'm a fan of keeping up on Sierra and how she's doing. So That's I fair. don't know. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I love the ignorant Atlanta rap. I'm so disappointed by this album. This album that he just dropped on the 15th. It's called High Off Life, and he has coronavirus bars in it, which I just. I don't know if I'm not that I'm not at the point yet where I can accept coronavirus references in music and pop culture that aren't talking about it. Like I don't like his bars are like coronavirus diamonds. Like he's got the flu. It's disgusting. Also, rappers stop making references to having a sickness because you're so icy. Like every single rap song has it. Move on. Find something else. Be more creative. Now, he really tried. Future did really try, but don't listen to his album. I will give you so many other albums that came out this week that are way better than the future album. Charlie XCX made an album. She made it entirely in quarantine. Like she made it in one month. It's beautiful. Listen to that. Moses Sumney has an album. All these people that are making way better music than future is making right now. So that's it. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up too, because uh, we did get to talk about that in our culture section, but um, Moses Sumney, uh, 
perfume genius right now my God. like are my are God. giving me queer anthems right now and they're both just like moody introspective albums uh moses is like he has jill scott on it so it's giving you that like neo soul vibe the perfume genius album is is sort of like um beach dream pop and i love that shit everybody listen to these albums so that we can talk about them next week watch the colors show where he performs cut me and he looks absolutely astounding. That's my only assignment to you guys. That's it. Soon we get Chromatica by Lady Gaga, and we also oh. get uh, Dedicated B-Side, if the Insta is steering me right, from Carly okay. Rae Jepsen. So pretty soon, queer people won't be shutting up about music. So just be aware that you're going to be yes. hit with an onslaught of the gay excitable tweets. <laughs> yeah, Carly Rae Jepsen releasing a B-Side to an album? I'm shocked. Yeah, I know. This is <laughs> unprecedented. <laughs> Lewis, what is your keep it this week? My keep it is to something that I find very well-intentioned and generally speaking is pretty cool with some artistic exceptions. I am talking about... The Second Amendment? Close. (laughs) That's right. I'm talking about the EW Pride cover, which is this cartoonified... Uh, where's Waldo looking assemblage of queer people in popular culture. So you see Elton John and RuPaul and Ellen DeGeneres and Janelle Monet and even Freddie Mercury. There's some historical people in there. If you scan to the right, you see Marlena Dietrich slow dancing with Cynthia Nixon, which I'm not saying I haven't had that dream. I just was shocked <laughs> to see it realized on a magazine cover. Now, here's the thing. It's meant to look like one of those murals you see on Hollywood Boulevard where Marilyn Monroe is hanging out with James Dean and John Wayne. Like It's not supposed to make logical sense. So in that way, it's cool to see a version of that with only queer performers, new and old. It's like seeing a gay version, a gayer version of the rap from Vogue realized um, in illustration form. However, between George Takai and Lil Nas X, who of course are both next to each other on this cover, Mm. in the background on the floor is the brick from Stonewall. (laughs) Um, I say this with affection. (laughs) Nobody here had anything to do with Stonewall. It's like if you looked in the background and saw Harvey Milk's tombstone. It's just completely out of place. (laughs) It feels like a glib addition to a picture that would have been perfectly cute otherwise. But now I look at this picture and think, this is about the Stonewall riots secretly? It's just a strange um, Easter egg to find in an illustration. A better uh, Easter egg, though, is that George Takai, I just realized right now, as I do this Keep It, is holding a magazine with Katie Lang on the cover. That's what I'm the talking about. The first issue that's of cute. Entertainment Weekly. That's cute. The first Entertainment Weekly. Oh, that's what that is. See, that's really cool. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I cackled so much at the Stonewall book. I just, just lost Like, like just... what the fuck I do? Why am I in it? Like... First, first of all, the, nary a Marsha P. Johnson on the cover. I don't see truly, her. Um, truly. And uh, the brick, the fuck did the brick do? <laughs> a gay icon, the brick. The, 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 someone, someone picked up the brick. The brick was minding its own business. <laughs> the brick's a conservative homophobe. We don't even know. <laughs> the brick was a bit of a centrist. Yeah. Right. And then also, Dorothy's shoe is on the piano. I will like, say, I mean, like, that okay. keys into, like, the whole friend, friend, of, of, Dorothy. friend of Dorothy. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. There's there's so many weird misfires in this. There's there's a lot of white people, for one. Um, like, Am if I you're looking putting... at Ryan Murphy? That's correct. Yes. yes. 
Which I, w- I would assume would be on it, but the, the garb is not what I would have expected to represent him. Well, I'm just it's not... his um, Liberace look from the Met, the Gala, Met Gala camp yeah. last year. Boo. And the thing is, you have Ryan Murphy on here, who, fine, he's the current ringmaster of queer shows on television. Sure. Where are the queer people who are in those shows? Though? Exactly. You know, like, where's, where's a Billy Porter? That. Uh, where's an India Moore? You know, mm-hmm. it is very lax. Sort of the person thing that a white gay would dream up, right? I'm looking at I one mean, trans person I, I look, I, on the spread. I, I, I looked at the Instagram of the person who created it, and you know, he's British and has muscles and he's hot. Boo. So, you know, a white gay dream. It sort of looks like um, the um, black paintings that you see in Harlem, the ones of like. Um, Aaliyah and like Biggie mm-hmm. and MLK mm-hmm. and Rosa Parks like all in heaven together <laughs> for some damn reason <laughs> hanging out <laughs> but then also like Michelle Obama's in it yeah. too <laughs> like they have an African American caucus in heaven but um, I want to know why they put all of the they put like Lil Nas X Laverne Cox Janelle Monet RuPaul all on the first page and then there's no black people on the second part of the spread like the half part the other half of the spread very that strange that is true right. yes very strange like I said it's a, it's a white gay thinking of the um, famous gay people that they remember immediately mm-hmm. and then at the end it's like well you sort of left these ones out and they're like well I had to get in um, Marlene Dietrich <laughs> 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 and Rock Hudson and I know that some people were dragging uh, Rock Hudson this week oh uh, yeah I get it we shouldn't really be attacking him but also he wasn't out you know and like what's happened to him was unfortunate um, being in the closet his career and um, his death was very sad as well um, and it brought to light the AIDS epidemic but um, it seems almost Ryan Murphy Hollywood-esque to include him on it too, right? Mm -hmm. Because so many of these other people are living out loud um, and this gay fantasia um, on mundane themes. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering how you were going to end that sentence. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. The conclusion of Rock Hudson does feel like it's just promo for Netflix's Hollywood. They could yes. have thrown in um, out gay man Sal Minio of uh, Rebel Without mm. a Cause fame. Uh, who was eventually nominated for an Oscar, a second Oscar for a movie called Exodus. And uh, he's cute. Yeah. Oh, he's adorable, right? But uh, I, I just want to say also, though, apparently Kristen Stewart tops Lily Tomlin. I had no idea, and I feel <laughs> <to see> it. <laughs> I want Kate McKinnon in the front. That's what I want. That's my only. That's my only uh, change, really. Stonewall brick and stay. Kate McKinnon comes to the front. She should be slow dancing with the brick. Come on. (laughs) Or like holding it and kissing it. Ira, do you have a keep it this week? My keep it this week is to um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I have to agree. (laughs) We talked about this last week when I was talking about Adele, right? Like keep people's bodies out of your mouth. And I get it that we hate Donald Trump. Listen, I mean, he's trash. He's not iconic. Uh, he's a disaster. <laughs> he's a uh, psycho. He, Call him a psycho. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so she was talking about the fact that he was claiming that he's taking hydroxychloroquine to ward off coronavirus, whatever, like self-administering it, 
first of all, we know that nigga's lying for one, okay? <laughs> because either he either he would be dead or he's having it administered to him properly. But it's dangerous for him to be saying that out loud when other Americans could adopt it because he is a cult leader and uh, many of his acolytes do whatever he says to the detriment of their own health uh, or their own economic stability. But Nancy Pelosi's conversation with Anderson Cooper, where she brought it up, she said, as far as the president is concerned, he's our president, and I would rather he not be taking something that has not been approved by the scientists, especially in his age group and in his, shall we say, weight group. Morbidly obese, they say. So I think it's not a good idea. First of all, you sound like Trump when you say this, right? The whole idea of, shall we say... Weight group, morbidly obese, so they say. Like you're, you're trying to pawn off your insult of Trump as something that other people are saying instead of something that you're saying. And you know what? Like Nancy, like knuck if you buck, okay? Like I've, I've, I've had enough of the everyone yes queening over the the clap that she did to Trump, yes queening over the ripping up the speech behind him. It's like all of these little. Twitter moments, these GIF moments, deciding to get people to um, stand something that's dramatic in politics rather than actually coming out and saying something that's useful and helpful to people in this time. And now you're using this moment to attack Trump because you think that he's morbidly obese. I want to say that whatever you think about Trump, there are a million things to say about him that don't involve his weight because what you're actually doing is attacking other people who are fat, you know, and it shows what you think of them. You know, it's um, so many people hopping online to defend her or saying, oh, this is funny. Or when you say that it's in poor taste for her to be saying this, um, you're accused of being sensitive. And I think it's just a common conversation that we have about people's bodies that is really inappropriate. People in your lives who are fat hear you saying these things and they don't feel good about them. You know, particularly like um, now in the coronavirus epidemic, right? You know, like how many tweets do you see from people who like, it, it seems like turning back to look at his wife level, um, the <laughs> idea that you might gain weight from eating too much in this pandemic, right? It's like the way that people just talk about their bodies online um, as if that is the possibly worst thing that could ever happen to them. It makes you sound cruel. And then laughing at Nancy Pelosi's joke is, I don't know, it's dumb. It's not funny. It's lazy. It also just reminds me, by the way, of when I think of uh, just one of the many reasons I particularly love Elizabeth Warren is the directness with which she would respond to mm-hmm. Trump's idiocy. She, it wouldn't go to a place of quote unquote shade, which is what Nancy Pelosi, I think, was trying to um, mm-hmm. execute. It's just he's so abysmal. Why not just respond with absolute directness about what he said, about what he's doing and not like do this like coy finger wag about mm-hmm. who he is? It just I don't see how it, it reminds me of like a bad interpretation of the when they go low, we go high thing. Like, well, they're terrible, but I'm only going to imply something terrible. It's like, that's not what that means. You know, you can still be direct and 
knock him down the thousand pegs he deserves to be knocked down, but Mm -hmm. you have to find a direct and, frankly, professional-sounding way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because when you make this reference, um, you're speaking for the headline. All of the headlines are going to mention Nancy Pelosi calls Trump morbidly obese, you know? Like, Nancy Pelosi rips up the speech, etc. Like, you're not going to get the headlines that says, Nancy Pelosi says, don't take this shit because it could kill you. Mm -hmm. Like, be too the point speak to what you need to be speaking about and don't try to be like a white teenager on tiktok like um lip syncing to nene leaks uh, <laughs> um shade you know it's like she was a step away from going like uh, what is this honey you got a white refrigerator <laughs> truck let's go buy you a haul also nancy Pelosi, <laughs> please don't ever put me in a position where i have to even in a roundabout way, defend Donald Trump. Like, that's what this is. And, you know, I it's a conversation of, like, and we were talking about this too, Ira, that I, I, I don't fully care that she insulted Trump. I would be fine. I would even invite that in a different situation. But call him a bitch. Call him a bitch. Call the beast the beast. That's what he is. Call, call him a the bitch. Thing, the thing that it is. But more importantly, <laughs> like, we have to maintain a certain standard about who and how we talk about bodies so that it's not hypocritical when I say, don't call Lizzo this or don't call Adele this. I also have to defend Trump. Like it's such a fucked up paradox that you put me in when you open your mouth, Nancy Pelosi, don't do this to me. Thanks, Nancy. She listens to this every week, by the way. Thank God she's going to heed this advice. I'm thrilled. (laughs) I'm thinking of who my favorite Nancy is now that Nancy Pelosi has stepped down. It's Nancy Walker from Rhoda. Take that. Mm, Mine's Sinatra. Oh, sure. I would I would pick that for you. I'm a bit of a day tripper, mm-hmm, if you will. Mm-hmm. Cute. Nice work. <laughs> Who's your favorite Nancy, Aida? Nancy Drew. Easily. Um, <laughs> Does mm. it keep the theme of detectives that we've had this whole episode for some reason? Mm. Fine. Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew. She do be in people's business. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And I love that for her. I love The that secret of the locket? She knows it. Yeah. <laughs> she knows it. Nancy Drew is nosy. <laughs> Well, there's our episode, um, and next week we'll have as a guest Nancy Spungen's ghost. <laughs> Good for us. Uh, she has some problems. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Thanks again to David Diggs for joining us, and we will see you next week. Bye. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware.